I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, Canada's national digital theatre. Each week, we take some of the hottest plays and transform them into contemporary audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome back. If you're new to Play Me, first of all, welcome. And second of all, just to get you up to speed with what we do, is at the end of each play series, we take a moment to chat with a playwright and get a little bit of an insight into the writing process and life as a writer. And since we just wrapped up Vitals, Laura took a moment to chat with Rosamond Small. If you haven't already listened to all the episodes of Vitals, you can do so by subscribing to iTunes or by going to playmepodcast.com. So let's just jump right into the interview. This is Laura Mullen talking with playwright Rosamond Small. So I'd just be really interested to hear about your trajectory to being a playwright. How did you find yourself um, in this kind of work? Um, I mean, I, I kind of think of it as something I've always been really interested in. I mean, not when when I was really small. You don't, I think, think of playwrights as as a thing. Like, you don't think of plays as having people behind them. Um, you just think of the people on stage as doing really exciting, cool things, and you don't think about how it happens. But... Um, my parents took me to theater when I was young and I really loved it. And then I think, uh, wanting to sort of boss my friends around, I would make them do shows, um, and sort of realize that if you didn't want to be the star, you could be like the director and then you could tell them (laughs) what to do. Um, and when did you figure that out? Oh, young, (laughs) like kindergarten, I think. Yeah, those are really fundamental memories, I think, sort of realizing that like, oh, like if you do a show, one person gets to decide what happens. That's legitimate. You can totally get away with (laughs) it. Yeah, just like not always the best practices as you become an adult. But um, yeah, I just loved it. And um, in high school, I went to, to Rosedale, which is an arts high school in Toronto. It's a fantastic school. And um, they they do the Sears Festival and they do their own sort of student fringe festival and they do major productions. And I I don't I think I again wanted to direct the show, which I never do now. But I wrote a show because if you wrote it, you could direct it sometimes. And then I wrote another one. And then I sort of really got this bug, I think, specifically with a show where I think some I made people laugh for the first time. And I was like, oh, that's fantastic um yeah and I really I've really stuck with it which I realize now means that I've been doing it for a really long time but I just I just love it it brings me so much joy did you go to school um after Rosedale yeah I did a year at the University of Guelph where I did a great playwriting class with Judith Thompson which is fantastic and then I transferred to U of T um because Toronto you could see see a lot more theater um, and I did the rest of my undergrad in English and some queer studies and gender studies and theater. Um, and now I'm in sort of almost a, a school program. It's an educational 
training program as well as a professional program um, at Soul Pepper because I'm in the Soul Pepper Academy, which is sort of a combination of a residency and a master's and not officially a master's, but a lot of, um, yeah, a combination of, of uh, practical and theory. So I'm, I feel like I'm in school right now a little bit. <laughs> How long is that program? It's two years, two full years. Yeah. And full time, part time? Full, full time. Yeah, yeah. But they um, they just support you like it's it's a job for two years. So it's pretty fantastic. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm very, very fortunate. How did you how did you get your start in Toronto theater? What was your first show? Um, I, oh, I mean, I guess there was a comedy I wrote called Genesis that I did a few times that was really me trying out comedy. I kind of think of it as me sort of figuring that side out, which is quite different from Vitals. I did that um, with my friends at the upstairs of the alumni right after high school and then in the Toronto French. Yeah. Uh, I also did a show sort of at the same time, overlapping the same couple of years uh, about Occupy Toronto that was verbatim. And that uh, got me on a totally different trajectory of real things and trying to get interviews with people and trying to figure out that kind of super, super grounded um, side, which can be hard to find. Well, that's a good entry point to Vitals, because when I when I read it, I felt it, not that it was necessarily verbatim, because obviously I think you would have said that, but that it felt very much like you had done a lot of research, talked to a lot of people. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Yeah, I mean, I owe so much to... Uh, Kaylee O'Brien, who's a paramedic in Toronto. I got to know her through her. Um, her husband is a friend of mine, and uh, I was chatting with him one day, and we were complaining about our jobs. He's a, te- a teacher, and I think at the time I was working some day job, and, um, and we were like, oh, like, you know, people are so annoying, and I'm so tired. And then she came home, and I met her for the first time, and was like, how was your day? And she was like, oh, like a couple heart attacks, and, you know, and this guy had overdosed. And I just, oh, my God, you know, those moments where you just get that incredible shot of um, sort of perspective, I guess. And um, and she became a friend of mine, and we chatted a lot, and, and she... Um, she would read drafts and say things like, oh, this is good, but if I did this, I'd lose my job, and you know, lots of that kind of thing. So she's really the reason that it feels, I think, um, I, I hope it shows that there are, um, you know, understandings a little bit of the bureaucracy of the job and the complications of the job. Um, if, if there are any mistakes in it, they're very much mine, because Kaylee did a really good job with that. I think it really... I mean, obviously, being a uh, an EMS worker or a paramedic always sounded like a like a job I would not <laughs> would not be for me. <laughs> yes, um, we share that. But but re- you know, reading it and then hearing um, Catherine's performance during the the recording, you know, just really makes you look at um, somebody in a different light. Actually, when I left the recording, I I saw an ambulance go by, and I was looking at the paramedic and thinking like. How do you how do you do that? What was was that your your feeling? Because it's it's not your typical day on the job. No, I mean, I think that's actually probably the number one thing that I've heard from people, which is really it's really cool because you always hope that something will stay with people in some way. Um, but yeah, if you see an ambulance and it makes you 
recognize that there's a whole story going on to the person inside of it or the two people inside of it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to have people have that reaction. And I, I share that reaction. Like that's very much what made me interested in writing the show was that, um, that idea that there are people living those kinds of lives, working those kinds of jobs all around. But then also I felt I rely on 911, right? Like we all do. Like we assume it's there. We assume that if we need help, it will arrive. And I think that's something that I very much took for granted. And I took um, every aspect of that for granted. And I think the fact that there are people making really huge sacrifices to make sure that we have that um, is really important. It's, it changes how we think about our families and our lives and our health and our government. It's a really fundamental thing to think of the individual people involved in that system. So it matters a lot to me. I think it was interesting because um, you know that you can dial 911 and you, you know, probably try not to think about it too much unless yeah. you've been in that situation. Of course. But just that the, the sort of time frame of, of what's expected in terms of them getting there in eight minutes and 59 seconds. And then just, and even just pointing out that there are some paramedics that are good and some mm. that are not as good or. Um, mistakes happen and all that stuff it's it's opens up a vulnerability in us all mm-hmm. um i wonder if you got a sense from from talking to your friend how she copes cuz cuz anna mm. in the play doesn't cope in in many ways and i wonder how 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 what what feeling you got in terms of how people do do that kind of a job and and then go to a family show or yeah get together yeah well i i mean Anna has a lot of, I think, my own things that I recognize in myself or that I recognize in other people as being not great coping mechanisms, right? She doesn't, she doesn't reach out, she doesn't talk, but she also doesn't have a lot of lifelines. Like she doesn't have, you know, I talk a little bit, I think they've worked on it in, in Toronto now, but there hasn't been in the past great mental health resources. So um, the character is is very isolated. Um, Kaylee, my friend, is such an incredible person and um, and to be honest, hasn't gone into deep detail as I wouldn't ask her to about, you know, I've never asked her, like, what's the hardest thing about your job or what's the worst thing you've ever seen? Like, I would never I would never ask that of someone. Um, but my my impression is that she she is a very um, she reaches out to a lot of people in her life. She's pretty honest about things. She has an incredible family. She's very open, and I, I think that helps her. I, hope I um, yeah, but I feel a little self conscious speaking about that because I also feel like that would imply even me saying that would al- would almost imply that you wouldn't have PTSD or you wouldn't have struggles if you had a loving family, which is also not true. <laughs> so I mean, the the real answer is I I don't know, right? Um, I think I think paramedics and people who work those kinds of jobs are all individuals and they all have different ways of getting through the day, right? Yeah. For Anna, I wonder, because there wasn't a ton of backstory, so you were, it was sort of left to your imagination, which was great. I wonder, when you wrote it, were you thinking that um, that she was drawn to the job for a particular reason or that she was, um, that the job sort of made her who she became? Mm. Sort of the chicken and the egg. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is a bit of chicken and egg because I, I think that she's a person who has trouble connecting to other people, right? She has trouble relaxing around them, opening up to people. 
And then through this job, she is so connected to people. She is able to save their lives, you know, uh, help their bodies, help their families. Um, And then, and yet on the other hand, that exposure to that day after day after day, I mean, I think there's a reason that we're afraid to be close to people and close to their traumas and close to their vulnerabilities. It's really hard. Um, So... Um, so yeah, I think, I think there's an inevitability to the show, which I think can be frustrating because we're used to Hollywood movies where there's a lot of like the, the moment where you, you make the mistake or the moment where things go awry that you should have, you know, to teach us like a lesson. And I, I don't know that there's anything else that Anna really could have done. Um, I think it's about the things around her and could we have done more? Could there have been something else, something from the outside to help her, um, yeah, I, I was waiting like when Amir came into it. I'm like, yes, yeah. here, here it goes. You know, even though, of course, that would not be what you would want. But there is that like, it's going to yeah. be OK. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder because some some of the some of the material is really difficult. I found it actually when I was reading it, I had to put it down oh, briefly. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's very powerful mm-hmm. and, um, and I'm squeamish. Mm. I wonder how it was for you to um, research that, write that, um, uh, sort of going there, mm-hmm. obviously, as a writer, can impact you. How, what was that like for you? Oh, it definitely can. It definitely can. I mean, I should be careful, though, because, you know, paramedics do this stuff for real. So, I, of course, you, you, I, I did. Yeah, it was very dark. And I, and I remember having, you know, I would write something and not really think about it and then sort of walk away and sort of feel, oh, my gosh, you know, like... Uh, in the moment when you're writing it, you don't feel so bad. And then the next day or a day after, suddenly you have this like horrible feeling, this like image of this thing that you've conjured or whatever. Um, and and made worse by the fact that I would show it to Kaylee and she'd be like, oh, yeah, that would happen. You know, like that kind of thing. Um, I think probably. Um, yeah, again, I'm so self-conscious because, you know, paramedics have the actual job and then I'm like, oh, writing about it is so hard, you know, Um but I think probably the fact that uh, I spent two years on the script meant that I wasn't every single day. I don't think, you know, you couldn't churn the script out working 10 hours a day for four months or something. Like it was very, I would have whole days where I didn't work on it. I would also, I had my collaborator, Mitchell, who directed the show and we would chat about it and I would chat with Kaylee. So I wasn't alone with it. And I think that's important. And you know that when it was staged, um, it was an immersive experience. So when I was reading it, I, which unfortunately I didn't get to see, so I was trying to imagine how that would be. Can you tell us a little bit about how it was staged? Sure. Uh, well, I think the first thing I should say is we were, oh, well, I guess I'll talk about how we got there. We were talking about how to do the show. Um, I was talking with Mitchell Cushman and and uh, and Catherine Cullen as well. The performer was around and we would talk about you know, what could make you feel like anything could happen in this show? What would make you feel like you were a paramedic in some sort of visceral way? And we came up with this concept of of walking through. Um, I don't think initially we decided it was a house. It was eventually a residential home. But that, you know, room to room, these these haunting images, right? These these whether they're memories, whether they're PTSD flashbacks, but whatever it is, Anna's someone who lives with her memories with her all the time. And um, and so the idea of wandering through a space and seeing the memories, we had um, 
And we eventually did have a home that we had a, a, a room with a sort of yoga studio in it. And then you would open the door and there'd be like cold and ice cream. And that would be, you know, the frosty guy. Um, and there was, uh, you know, trees all over the kitchen for sort of thinking about High Park. So the idea is that you are experiencing coming home, but not being able to leave these memories at the door. And we were given a home to I do this. I was wondering, thing. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, with, from the Heinz family of Toronto, an incredibly kind couple um, who, who moved out of their house in Roncesvalles for us to do this play, which was, I don't know, some kind of patron of the arts gold star. Um, yeah. And they have this really, really interesting house that has like two staircases and two balconies. They sort of... Um, uh, bought it, I think, when it was, uh, you know, the early 70s or something. And so it's like a really big old Toronto home that you probably couldn't have for one person, one family now. So we were so fortunate. Yeah. How long was the run? Six weeks, I think. That's a, yeah. That's a big commitment. For Toronto, that's a long run. Like, uh, I was so lucky. Um, but we had a small audience capacity. So I think we wanted to have as many people see it as possible. Yeah. Really kind of them. <laughs> I guess I, I also wonder um, about the audience's reaction to such a, a show with such um, stark imagery in the in the language and obviously in the piece. How what was that like? It was all over the map. Um, I know that. I think one thing about this play and revisiting this play is, you know, I it was. It was produced about two and a half years ago. So that means I started working on it about four and a half years ago. And in that, you know, four and a half years, my experiences with um, the darker things in life have changed as, as they do. And I, I think I understand now more um, what an impact something like this can have on someone. And it doesn't necessarily indicate artistic merit. It, it can be fine, but the really, really dark things in the in plays can disturb people in a way that is um, complicated, you know. Um, so, but they were all over the map. Some people honestly would see the show and be like, "Cool show," you know. <laughs> like there were like loads of people. Like uh, some people also because they knew it was immersive and stuff. Like we had some really odd choices. Like a few people came and got really high and then came to see the show. And like I don't understand. That was like. They got the wrong end of the stick of that experience. And they'd be like, oh, I really like to look at the the yoga room was so dim. And, you know, um, and then other people would would go to those really dark places and would remember. Um, I think the best experience is if you can stay there with the character. But then you could also see sometimes people were being invaded by things that had happened to them. Right. Which were too close to the show. And that's something that is part of art and, and a hard part of it and not necessarily indicates, I, I really have reflected a lot on, and that doesn't, I think, mean that your art is not good, but I also don't think it means your art is good because you can just remind somebody of bad things. That's not very hard. Yeah. But, um, but overall, incredible responses, awesome conversations with paramedics after the show. Man. Of course. Yeah. It was supported, I'm assuming, by the, by the paramedic community. Yeah, the the paramedic association and Kaylee and and her friends. All, uh, we had one night that was a fundraiser for the Tima Contra uh, uh, Memorial Trust, which is a PTSD charity. And um, yeah, paramedics thought it was so funny. Like 
funny. <laughs> funny. They thought it was so funny. I mean, not the whole play, but the parts about, you know, um, Harry being bad at his job. Uh, there'd always be like three people in the audience just laughing almost like inappropriately loudly. And then you could see other theater goers sort of turning around and being like, you know what, they shouldn't, they, this is a real job. They should take this a little more seriously because this actually happens to people. And it was always the paramedics who were like, just losing it. Like they just, you know, that tended to be, I think, the part that, that spoke to them the most, right? <laughs> well, you know, I guess you don't get to see that job dramatized. I mean, even yeah. if you watch, you know, Grey's Anatomy or yeah. something, it's, they just bring bring the patient in and it's yeah. all about the doctor. Yeah, so totally. I'm sure it was amazing to see their lives um, blown up like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope so. I know that, um, that you work with Outside the March, that you have another show coming up, which we will talk about in a moment, but... Um, I know that that there's the direction of immersive experiences, and I'm just wondering why you're drawn to that as a writer. Hmm. Um, hmm. I mean, I think they're not everything and they're not for everything, but I, I do think immersive theater really just means theater that that isn't necessarily anything. Um, so it's not necessarily seated, but it could be, and it's not necessarily in a theater uh, but it could be, but just imagined in some different way. And there's not necessarily interaction with the performer, but there could be. So to me, just opening up that box of possibility is so tempting and cool and speaks to my wish to engage with something on multiple levels. You know, I, I want to I wanna make the choice to walk forward into a story physically. That's very exciting to me. Um, I want to see a performer you know, from further away, like in some immersive pieces, you'll see a performer at a window and they're far away, or you'll see them right up close to you and you'll share a closet sized space with them. Um, every performance is different though. So I shouldn't paint a picture of immersive theater. The way I think it's sometimes perceived is always really, really close and really intense or really, really crazy or really, really big. It's just for me, anything. So I think it's really natural to be drawn to the idea that there's just so many possibilities for how to work. And I'm also just very influenced by working with Outside the March and working with Mitchell. Um, it's it's a really exciting company, and they're very collaborative with me. Um, and so for me, when I'm writing, I don't want to be alone. So I like to have other ideas and other possibilities, and, and immersive theater is so collaborative. Your designer is so important. Your sound designer is so important. Um, your producer is so important, right? How do you tell the story before people get to the theater? How do you sell tickets in a way that enhances the experience of the show? So um, there's that and and the directing and everything is, it, I think you can have that in a regular theater, but to me it becomes necessary and it becomes a more integral part of the show. Yeah. What is your process when you're working with Mitchell? When you're writing, are you part of the rehearsal? I got that impression from, mm-hmm. from the recording yeah. that you were had been in the room prior. Oh, yeah. So yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? We just work really, really closely. Um, I mean, I do all the writing, but he reads the scripts and every line is, you know, why is it like this? And I don't know about this. And um, uh, and and he's also supportive. He'll say, this part's really good. You know, he I think the number one thing he often does is saves me from my own self-editing, um, which you can do if you have someone reading, you know, not four drafts or five drafts, but 25 drafts. Then it becomes a different relationship. Um and, uh, and that also means that when it changes and it becomes rehearsal, we're so, we're pretty much so on the same page uh, about what we're trying to do that it's not that, um, 
I've never had this, but I know sometimes directors and writers have combative relationships. And I think if you're on the same page before the show starts, before the rehearsals start, um, it often means that uh, that you don't you don't step on each other's toes as much. <laughs> I mean, I, I try because I'm also very anxious, so I try not to go into rehearsal rooms and bring that anxiety. So that's my job. But um, but yeah, having that it's it's hard though. It takes a lot of time. Like it takes it takes me more time to do that many drafts to come to, and it takes me time to go to rehearsals and it takes Mitchell time to read so much thing so many things. Like it's um, it's a really intense way of working. I don't know if you were doing ten shows a year. I don't think you could do that. Yeah. Do you find um, even in that process that there is a handing over and it's your interpretation or is there a little bit of that exchange? Honestly, I don't feel like I hand it over. I feel like we stay on top of each other. We stay. um, I mean, there's a for me, it's more it's more the actors, because I think now, especially now we're on our second show um, and in our new show, we're doing simultaneous storylines so there's actually more material going on there's multiple stories going on at the same time and so there'll be times when I'm going to be in the room and Mitchell won't be in the room um because there's so much going on so we really are uh, yeah I don't feel actually that there is a handing over really because I think we we fight to get each other on side oh I was going to say that the actors you hand it over to the actors I think ultimately I think it's about like we push each other, we shove each other, we figure out exactly what we are trying to do and we we talk about it incessantly and then eventually you have to realize that you're not in the show. <laughs> and um and in the case of Vitals it was about, you know, Catherine had been with us through so many workshops and rehearsals and she knew what she was, she was doing and the apprentices on the show knew what they were doing and we just had to had to walk away and that's that's the handing over. <laughs> then you go to the bar and you're really done. <laughs> Yeah. Do you act or have you acted since since kindergarten? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I um as part of my work at Soul Pepper, I have to do a solo show, but it's uh for private uh, one-time only performance. Um and that assignment I think is uh very much specifically to remind you how hard actors work. Um is by making you go on stage and stand by your writing and remind yourself that you know, what you might do on a whim or what you might think is cool or something might actually be impossible. Like I am from verbatim. I picked up habits to do with like crazy punctuation because the way that people actually speak has ellipses and dashes and, and weird half brackets, like, um, and sometimes that would get in and it still does get into my fictional writing, um, my fictional dialogue. And I also am learning how irritating it is um, to not be able to understand what you're saying and that it's really, uh, that, that can be interesting, but you need to scale it back at a certain point or find clarity. You need to find clarity because if someone's going to be on stage in front of a hundred people or 200 people or more, they, they, they need to feel like they know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, that's yeah. like a great exercise. It's yeah, it's valuable and, and it, um, yeah. And it, you learn about yourself, <laughs> I think. Yeah. I'm wondering about your process. Um, when you start, do you know what you're going to write? Like, do you know the end? No, not at all. Um, I try. I'm always so relieved when people say that because <laughs> a lot of people say, yeah, I know exactly yeah. the end and I don't start until then. So it's, it's nice to hear that. Mm-hmm. So what do you start with? I start with anything that comes. Like you start anywhere, wherever you can. Um, 
I, I would like to plan more. That is definitely something that I'd like to force myself at least once to plan an entire story and then execute it. But it's hard because um, I felt really connected to an interview I read with George Saunders, who's an incredible short story writer. And uh, he writes these really funny, really interesting, dark pieces that are very personal um, and really unpredictable and imaginative, but they always sort of make sense somehow. And, um, and he talks about it. planning can mean that you are planning. It, it means a sort of, um, it, it brings him to a place of like uh, a moral at the end of the tale, you know, that he, there's a sort of, I, I don't think all writers are like this at all, but I, I share this with him that if I plan something, I end up planning sort of something, um, there's like a, a lesson at the end and that, and that brings me to a place of sort of, it, it brings out, I think some self-righteousness in me or some sense that I need to know the answers to things. Um, whereas if you're just trying to empathize with a person in this situation and then what they would, what they would do and then what would happen because of that. And then what would they do? And if you work through it, I think it can save you from, it can, it can somewhat save you from that trap. Um, but everyone's different. That's just me. And do you ever find yourself writing about something and then realizing I'm actually writing about something else? I thought, oh, it, I yeah. thought it was about this, but actually it's about that. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Um, I actually now worry if I haven't had to do too many drafts. Like it worries me if it hasn't changed enough. It makes me feel that I haven't recognized the flaws in my original, in my original premise. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. It's it, all vitals. I think the first version of it, I was like, cool, there'll be a paramedic. And I'd written, you know, two pages or something. And then I sort of arbitrarily added like, I don't know, I guess it'll be about like five women and all of their lives. That's a show, you know? And I don't even think I did a draft or maybe I did like a 10 page draft for playwriting class, I think. But, um, Yeah. And I mean, that's not a very good idea, but I know that now, right? <laughs> you had to write it to figure that out. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I really got the sense of a lot of drafts, especially after hearing Catherine um, read it, because there were so many little pieces of sto- of the story and vitals that, that came out and then came back. Like when I heard, like I read it, but when I heard Catherine say, talk about the baby, um, uh, that that uh, is in the bathtub, and then she says that it was a perfect call, and it didn't really resonate. Mm. And I and I and her line resonated. And then, of course, we we revisit that family mm-hmm. in a big way. And mm-hmm. uh, so, I, I assume there was many many drafts. Oh, so get, many, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and Kaylee would help as well, and she would add things like, "Oh, this happened to me one time. Maybe that's part of this, or anything like that." Um, the yeah, the the process of of taking in and pulling out and connecting things is um, it's really a, a friend of mine pointed out to me quite recently actually because my because tomorrow love is short pieces um, that vitals kind of is short pieces it's really like fifteen twenty short stories um, and the difference is there's one central witness to all of them um, but that they're yeah. So, oh, so many, so many pieces were cut, added, removed, some really bad, obnoxious kind of dramatic ones. And then some that I think were kind of interesting, but they didn't feed her journey and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. 
Well, that's a great uh, segue to talk about Tomorrow Love. You want to tell us a little bit about your new show? Sure. So it's um, a a large-scale immersive experience uh, with Outside the March. It's a journey into many different possible versions of the future where one piece of technology that is not currently possible is possible. Uh, And it's about relationships and how we try to use these new kind of incredible technologies to understand each other better. And sometimes that works and sometimes it brings us further apart. But uh, it's really about trying to connect with people and try to find intimacy or vulnerability or love with another person. And the production is in a secret, exciting building, which has been transformed in a very exciting way. Uh, I was there last weekend and I was quite overwhelmed by the amount of work in the building. Um, And you will follow, there's a cast of eight and they split off into uh, couples and you see their story. And then you follow one of the people from that story and they turn into someone else and you go, they go meet a new partner and do a new scene. So you follow these, um, you make choices navigating through the building and you follow a series of sort of duets all set in these different worlds. You decide where you fo- where you go and who you follow. Yeah, yeah. You can't want you don't wander completely freely through the building, um, but after each story, you can choose a direction. Yeah, and there's a lot of material. So, um, you I think theoretically you could come four times and not see any repeated stories. Like it's quite a lot of writing because we really wanted to make it feel like these infinite possibilities, and then. Afterwards, you can ask your friend or your bring your partner and say, "What did you see?" You know, yeah, that sounds amazing. And and you're not revealing the location at this time, is it? Is it that we find out sort of when it opens, or how, how does that work? Uh, the building is called the Aorta, um, but as you can tell from the name, probably it, relating to the heart that we named the building. So um, it's an entire building that's all ours, and it's. I mean, we can tell you that it's on the subway line, and I think if you buy a ticket, you get the address. But that's all I can really say. Amazing. <laughs> How long have you been working on Tomorrow Love? Pretty much since Vitals closed. Um, another really long-term project. Um, a lot more material than Vitals, so even more work with Vitals. I would sort of write for a bit and then take a little bit of time and then keep writing. And this is not really like that. <laughs> um, but because there's different stories, I can dip into this one and then dip into this one. Um but yeah, uh, again, with Mitchell, a really collaborative process that's been going on for a long time. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, uh, you'll see that I have, I know this is a recording, so people listening can't tell, but I have a very stunned look on my face because we start rehearsals on Monday. <laughs> yeah, but it should be really fun. It's, it's I think, um, I, I just feel that the, the value it can offer, I, I hope, is, is really worth your time. We just have an incredible cast and uh, just just a, a, a ton. Like it's big. It's big in a way Vitals wasn't big. Yeah. It sounds like a huge undertaking, a huge rehearsal process. Are you rehearsing right in the building? Um, yes. Yes. Oh, and the actors change roles every night. That's oh, the other part oh, of wow. it. Yeah. Infinite possibilities. Uh, you know, wake up and meet someone and change your whole life, that whole theme. So the actors are rehearsing um, a lot more than one set of roles. So it's insane. I think anyone, anyone trying to understand the process of the show can just walk away with this is an insane proposition. Yeah. You look very calm considering. <laughs> when does it open? Um, it opens on November 19th. 
And how long is the run? Uh, I think we're uh, two weeks or something. It's pretty. It's pretty close. So, uh, so um, yeah, it's limited. It's very limited. Yeah. And are you working on anything else? I know that's like all consuming. Yeah. But but do you always have another idea, another project on the go, or do you sort of finish one and start another? I mean, uh, I have ideas and notions and things, but nothing really concrete because tomorrow love is. Um, uh, 15 stories so those really need my attention um, and then I have my solo show for Soul Pepper but that isn't really I think ever going to be a public show it's just an exercise so I keep busy but that's are you still <laughs> writing tomorrow live like is it one of those things that you're 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 working right up until you open kind of a thing oh for sure yeah I mean not like creating new material but um you know uh does clarifying a line here clarifying a line there making sure I'm ready for when um, actors ask questions. Um, it's it's so much material that I think we've stamped three quarters of the show, sort of final draft, quote unquote, meaning that they're ready to print and the rest of them will be done for Monday. But yeah, I, I hesitate to say that I'm still writing it because I think that gives an impression that we kind of weren't ready. And I think it's more... Um, it's more rigorous than that. And that's not at all my own discipline. That's Mitchell and his very wise thought that if we're going to ask these actors to do this, it needs to be ready for them to start work. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I just want to ask, so uh, back to Vitals for just a moment. Vitals is going to print. It's it's going to be a oh, published yeah. play. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's my first published thing. It's um, being printed by Gordon Schellingford, which is a, a publishing company, and I think they're based out of Vancouver, but they also have offices in Toronto. Um, and it's, yeah, they're in the mail right now. Um, I have to confirm, but there will be a book launch, so I can give you that date. Um, and uh, all the royalties from it are going to the Tima Contra Memorial Trust, which is the PTSD charity for paramedics. So um, I just like to say their name because they're a really great organization, uh, that work with firefighters and paramedics and other emergency workers. And it's really cool. The editor did a great job and it's all laid out and my mom's really proud. So I guess the, the show, is it, is it open for other companies to mount in other places? Because obviously it would be, it would be great on a number of levels. Oh, of course. Yeah. I would love it to find uh, any kind of new audience and, and new interpretation too. It was um, an immersive experience with Outside the March, but it could be uh, a black box experience. It could be at a school. It could be, um, I, I would love, you know, I think I, I don't want to hold myself up as some great savior of womankind, but there aren't a ton of shows about women and their jobs. And, you know, I'm a woman who really cares about my job. And I know a lot of women share that experience and uh, especially a job that is really hard, really physical, really essential um, to be, I, I hope, I hope female performers find scripts like this. I think that that would make me really happy. And you won the Dora for best new play. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we were, oh, that was really fun. We won the best uh, outstanding production and outstanding new play, which is really fun because it's right at the end of the night. So you've been like waiting and watching and congratulating everyone else. And then finally you're like, and it's our turn, you know? <sighs> And what was that like when you heard Vitals in your name? Oh, it was nice. Um, Julie Tepperman and Aaron Willis were presenting, and uh, I'd been able to sort of, because I know them, I've been able to tell them how to pronounce my name, so they said it right, which was really nice. Um, 
Uh, and because uh, I know a lot of people at the doors, I, if you're a Dora presenter, uh, like bless you, but you should ask people how to say their name because there were some appalling, like, um, yeah, it's really, it's really fun. And, and um, I, I think increasingly I realize why it's important not to hang your hat on awards too much or that kind of recognition. I think it can come with sort of a paralysis of anxiety, but it is you know, I have this clown statue that my parents keep on their piano and they bring it out at parties and everyone at the party says, what is that? Why is there, why are you showing me this clown statue? Um, but the, <laughs> the doors are awesome. It's a, a great, it's, you know, there's not a ton of reward in a literal way from this kind of work. Uh, so that kind of reward is really, really fun. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You too. So much. I know you have to get back to Soul Pepper. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck with your show. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. And thank you for doing this. This is a great initiative. Like I was saying to you earlier, I think that I can, I can send this recording to my aunt in Scotland and she can actually experience something I did, which is really cool. So thank you. Visit playmepodcast.com to learn more about our shows, leave a comment, or let us know what you think of our podcast. Some of the music used in Play Me is licensed under Creative Commons license. Please visit playmepodcast.com for a list of the pieces used and for attribution. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley. The associate producer is Pippa Johnstone. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Special thanks to our partners, the Playwrights Guild of Canada, Factory Theatre, Tarragon Theatre, and the Musical Stage Company. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.